0: what's up my brothers and sisters welcome to the Fireground fitness podcast where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. my guest today is a brother by the name of colin kennedy he traveled the world and settled down in phoenix arizona and we talk about all that we talk about growing up in ireland and uh what brought him to the united states and how he landed here we talk about all that and so much more enjoy Colin, how are you?
1: Good. Good. It's good to be nice. here. Thank, Thank you for having you. me. Yeah,
0: man. I'm, I'm happy to have an opportunity to sit down and talk to you and talk about uh, your journey into the fire service and, and get to know you a little bit more and learn a little bit about you and what's important to you.
1: All right.
0: So, um, so first of all, when I first met you, I was shocked by your accent. So where are you from?
1: So I'm born and raised in Ireland uh, at about 23. I got the travel bug. Ended up coming out to the States, met an American girl, and we ended up traveling the world a little bit. We spent some time in New Zealand, uh, spent a year there, moved to Australia right after that, spent a year there, back to Ireland for about a year, ended up getting married and been here in the States now for 10 years. So quite quite the uh, long way to get here, but nonetheless, here we are yeah. doing this right now. <laughs>
0: so... so. This is going to sound like a completely ignorant question, but I want to know, what's it like growing up in Ireland?
1: It's definitely different. How so? So, I mean, I I was born in 1984. So, 80s, early 90s, Ireland wasn't doing so hot. Uh, typically, if the United States has a great economic period, we're a couple of years thereafter. But if there's a crash, we crash right alongside, and we crash real hard. Being hmm. a smaller nation... We rely heavily on tourism and tourism is definitely a you know if you've got extra cash people travel when money gets tight that's yeah. one of the first things to go right yeah for sure so growing up in the 80s in ireland uh very 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 singular uh type of people walk around all white like me stand next to a milk bottle and you might disappear <laughs> uh, very little diversity yeah It's changed in the past 35, 40 years, which is a fantastic thing. By the immigration into
0: Ireland? Huge.
1: Okay. So it used to be that the Irish would leave, and it was often said that Irish people didn't immigrate, they infest. So they would, you know, take over a country, essentially, and the east coast of the United States is a a good example of that. If we go back to the 1840s, when we had the famine in Ireland, we had basically uh, 20% of our population died in the famine over the course of a four or five year period, and about 40% decided they needed to go somewhere else to try and look for opportunity and better themselves or their family or whatever it may be. Some went across to England, Scotland, Wales, maybe a little bit to Europe, but a huge portion of them came into the United States on the east coast. So if we go forwards to when I was born in the 80s, we still had a lot of conflict going on between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which is a southern portion of that. Ireland from top to bottom is a five and a half hour drive so the entire country itself is the size of the state of Maine so really small population right now is about 6 million if you include both sides of that island being Northern Ireland and the Republic but the conflict between the two was always there I didn't necessarily understand what it was all about yeah. Um, and it stems back 800 years to being invaded by the English and then about 100 years ago Ireland became an independent nation and since then, there's still that little bit of, hey, what are you doing occupying part of Ireland? Why is the British rule still there, the British pound? For me, as a kid, I didn't I didn't know anything except what my parents would tell me, what they read or saw on the news. And you start to lean one way or the other. And when you're not out in the world experiencing that, and you're a young child, you believe everything you're told. Sure. So as you get a little older, you start to experience things for yourself. You visit places. You do your own reading, research. And more often than not, back then, what we received was probably accurate information today. Who knows what we're getting to be accurate or not, unless I see it with my own eyes. I tend not (laughs) to believe it. And then as you go through high school in Ireland, or our version would be secondary school, I was probably 14 or 15 when there was somebody in my school that wasn't pasty white like me, and that was like, "Wow, there's a there's a new kid in town." That was the
0: first time you were you were kind of introduced to somebody of exposed to anybody other than an
1: Irish person, essentially. Yeah. Now, obviously, you're watching TV. American TV and movie is huge for the rest of the world, but never having experienced that myself, yeah. so I came from a place of ignorance, essentially. And you get to know people, and you recognize that most of us come from a. You know, a family, an environment, whether it's broken home or not. We mm. had parents at one point. We may have siblings. There's a lot more that we have in common than we do not. Once I reached 18 in Ireland, it's, you know, you're an adult at that point. You can do anything you want, basically. You can drink. You can drive. You can vote. You can join the military. Um, and for me, I decided to start traveling. So at 18, my friends and I would get on a plane. And we'd fly to London. And have a good time and we'd fly to spain and have a good time or fly to germany and have a good time and yeah. started experiencing this and then with the united states with a lot of restrictions being on 21 or older i was like, all right well i can't even rent a car if i go there at yeah, 21 <laughs> i can't <laughs> go to a bar under the age of 21 but once i turned 21 my friends and i started to come to the to the u.s yeah so but if we go back after you know when i was in middle school or the equivalent i'm 10, 11 years old for money, essentially for pocket money or allowance, my parents gave me 50 cents essentially a week and that was enough to buy a a chocolate bar and a bag of potato chips or something right? right. and that wasn't unusual for then, it wasn't unusual for parents in my position at the time or the part of town that we lived in, it wasn't exactly the best place in the world but the only way to make money as an 11 year old child is to go and pick fruit in the fields it's like all alright I guess I'm going to go pick some fruit in the field. So I spent most of my summers for the first, I guess when I was 11, 12, and 13, picking strawberries, raspberries, gooseberries in farmer's fields. And there'd be 25 or 30 kids out there. Totally slave labor. I mean, there's no (laughs) way around it. It was 1995. This isn't hundreds of years ago. This was pretty damn recent. And it was just, it wasn't unusual to me. It wasn't, oh, I'm the... the poor kid i'm the the one who has to go and do this we enjoyed doing it because it was fun you're with your friend and you're earning a little bit of cash i'd say if, yeah. after 40 hours of work i made about 20 dollars. so i do mean a little bit of cash yeah And it, your,
0: when you look back now because as a kid i was i was i was pretty unaware of my parents situation financially <laughs> so when you look back you know were you did you have an awareness of where your family was at financially or
1: at the time i certainly didn't yeah. because a real small town. My parents didn't have a car. It wasn't unusual for people not to have a car in that town or especially in that part of town. Mm. And I think it was probably the mid-90s before my parents had purchased their first vehicle. Really? So, again, it, it, you, you watch TV and you've got 16-year-old kids here in right. the United States getting a car on their birthday. I was like, wow, right. that's just <laughs> unbelievable. I didn't believe that that could actually be the case. Yeah. I thought that's just the movies. Right, right. So you don't know. You don't know what you're missing out on if you've never seen it before, experienced it. Yeah. And we were just normal, you know, as far as I was concerned. Right. But I look back, and it would not have been uncommon to have the same clothes my brother once wore. Yep. And they'd come to me, the hand-me-down yep. system. And, yep. and I definitely see that many families will do that now at a convenience, but it was more of a, hey, this is our only option. Um. And the best thing my parents did for themselves and for us when I was probably six or seven, they moved out to the countryside. And they got away from that small little area. And for us, when I look back, if I had have stayed friends with people from that neighborhood in which I was born into, I certainly wouldn't be here in the U.S. I'd probably be doing nothing with myself back home. So Why I, do you see that? So the example I'll give to that... When I was 11, I was in my final year of primary school. Mm-hmm. And a few years ago, a friend of mine uh, or a friend from back then requested me on Facebook to be a friend. I was like, yeah, absolutely. So I, and I noticed he had a picture on there from our class when I was 11 years old. And I could look back and see everybody and remember all of their names. Yeah. And I said, hey, if you don't mind, can you give me an update on where all of these people are now? Like, right. What are they doing? What's going on in their lives? And of the 25 kids, I believe, in that class, I think he said four of them are dead. I'm only 37. Mm. Four of them are dead. Four or five are in prison right now doing some serious time. An additional five or six are homeless or, you know, abusing, using drugs. And then the majority of the rest are still at home, living the home, small-town life. And, again, that's if that's satisfactory for them, then you go have it. But for me, I always felt like there was something else out there. Yeah. And an airplane was the way to go and see it. So. Yeah.
0: How did, you know? It begs the question, though, how did you afford to travel?
1: Worked. So when I, <laughs> when I was at 11 years old, you start working. Huh. I say my old man working 60, 70 hours a week. Like, hey, he's got a work ethic. And he eventually started to take me to his job. He worked as a painter. And for the most part, when I was... Initially, starting, I was uh, standing at the bottom of that ladder, just yeah. making sure it didn't move, <laughs> or handing a tool, or searching, or whatever. Yeah, and that was that was again normal for me. I'd go to work with him, and I'd make probably what was it at the time twenty pounds a week during the summertime. So I got away from my you know, first job picking fruit. Now I've graduated to s- footing a ladder for my dad while he's painting someone's house. And then when I was 15, I was eligible to actually start working in a, a regular retail environment. So I started working at gas stations and mini-marts and stuff like that. So I had multiple jobs going through school. I had multiple revenue streams. <laughs> Some were probably not appropriate. Um, you know, using Napster to download music and burn CDs and sell them. And then when I went to college, I said, all right, well, I guess I got to work. So I had three jobs in college. Two of them at the same facility. One doing security for the nighttime events, weddings, parties, whatever. And in the daytime, I was working at the fitness center in the in the hotel. And I went to college for essentially health and wellness. So I was trying to use my college education, but knowing that hey, I can just show up and and push some people out and about. I'm not <laughs> I'm not the biggest guy, but I can put a pretty stern look on when I want. And I always worked. I've never not had a job. Yeah, I've always had multiple jobs. Right now, in fact, it's probably the only time in my career that I haven't had more than one job. Well, you're also roles. a parent. Sure, that, that, and a <laughs> husband and all that stuff. But uh, working in the fire services just allowed me to focus on this. Yeah, I definitely involve myself in different areas of the fire service. Mm-hmm. I'm not somebody that is satisfied with just showing up on my work day On my days off, I'll be involved with the paramedic training program or or ACLS and BLS and PALS recertification program. I'm an instructor with that. But, yeah, I've always had jobs. I've always figured out a way to make some money and have a good time, and I play it hard and party hard, and here
0: we are. Well, good. So I think that getting out, there's something to be said for getting out of high school, traveling around and seeing the other world especially when you come from such a homogenous you know culture right and then what were some of the things that shocked you or stood out to you when you started traveling
1: definitely when it came to the states I guess the movies are real hmm. right because you see the good and the bad I spent most of my time in LA Santa Monica Venice Beach area and you got a lot of money and you got a lot of folks who do have fancy cars at 16 years old and you got a lot of homeless people You've got these two huge ends of the spectrum living and working in that same area, in the same district. I think that coming to the States, especially for me, because of the diversity that we have here, it really is the melting pot. If I wanted to have two more jobs tomorrow, I probably could make that happen. They may not be jobs that I will enjoy, but they would put food on my table. So the opportunity is absolutely here. Even when COVID was at its highest Six months ago, a year ago, 18 months ago, there were still opportunities for people. Even now, I look at all the jobs advertised and staff wanted and people wanted. And if I was somebody that wasn't in this current position, I feel as though if I went into the retail field or the the food service industry, you could move up those ranks pretty damn fast if you got some work ethic and drive behind you because they're so understaffed right now that there's a, there's an opportunity for somebody to push themselves along real quick in that process. Yeah. And for me, there's a, a quote that a guy called Les Brown once used. He said, it's better to be prepared for an opportunity and not have one than have an opportunity and not be prepared. Oh, I like that. And I've taken that into the fire service every single time of an opportunity to learn something, train, put my hand up, ask a question. I'm that guy. and the guy that makes the, <laughs> the meeting go the extra 15 minutes because Colin has a question. <laughs> um, but if I don't ask and nobody else asks, I'm never going to find out.
0: Right. And you have to assume that there's other people in that room. If you have a, you're an intelligent person. If you have a question, there's probably other people with that question. Sure. And to sit in ignorance is the most ridiculous thing, yeah. right? Just because you're uh, afraid to put yourself out there and ask a question, then you walk away going, well, my gosh, I wish I knew this answer. While well, everybody else knows this, but no. they don't. So better to ask it and, yeah. and to move forward with some knowledge.
1: So on that, for our fire department, I'm involved with the recruitment, the online recruitment sessions that we do. Oh, yeah. So once a month on a Wednesday, we put on an online recruitment information session And of the 14 that we've done thus far, I've probably been involved with six of them. We'll sit down and have a teams meeting with 40 or 50 people who are out of state, out of city. Some are local, some are not. And for the majority of them, they have no idea what the fire service is. So to stop them from having a rumor or he said, she said hey, I have the actual answer for you. And if you do come up with a question in which I don't have the answer, I'm going to find out. I'm not going to bluff my way right? because there's a lot of, well, I don't have a brother on the job or a sister or my dad's not a firefighter. Can I be successful? Absolutely. I'm a, an example of that, I believe. I I didn't know a single soul when I decided that, yes, let's go and do this and pursue this. And I was successful that first route. I um, it's I dove right into the deep end I essentially started working part-time to allow myself the freedom to go to volunteer events, to do ride-alongs, yeah. to get my EMT done.
0: So l- before we talk about that, what? let's talk about for a second what prompted you to consider the fire service.
1: So if we go back to high school, yeah, I'm 15 years old, and in Ireland, before you go into your second last year, so here that would be your junior year, before mm-hmm. you go into your junior year, you have to select which subjects you want to do for those next two years, which doesn't sound like a big deal. However, the subjects you pick will either allow you or eliminate you from um, pursuing a different college career. Hmm. So if I don't pick biology when I'm 15, well, I can't go and do a course that has biology in college because the prerequisites are there. Hmm. I don't know anyone who's coming out of college that really truly knows what they want. Never mind Um, a 15-year-old kid. Yeah, not at all. So I had no idea where I wanted to go for college, what I wanted to
0: do. It little, on, quick question. Is is college funded by the state? Yes. Is it? Oh, okay. Yep. So they pipeline you into a certain path once like from high school through and then when you get into college you're kind of in a certain Yeah, you'll path.
1: you'll get certain subjects to you. You can do an honors level, which is a higher grade, or a pass level, which is a lower grade. The maximum score you can get is 600 points. So you get scored on your best six subjects, and each one is worth 100 points maximum. Mm -hmm. So if you get A1 or A-plus in all of them, you get 600 points. You can go be a doctor. You can be a veterinarian. You can be whatever the heck you want. The application process is 100% based on your final testing scores out of high school. So you don't have to worry about not being able to afford medical school. You just got to be smart enough to get in.
0: Right. And and have the drive to perform. Well in, that's in that's high the school, other sense. Right. You that's
1: where I didn't have it. I didn't have the drive in high school at all. Yeah. Unless I respected this is ridiculous, but unless I respected the teacher, I didn't enjoy the subject. Mm. So I had a history teacher who I really respected. He was one of our sports coaches. Like, oh this guy's pretty cool. So I pay attention to history. Right. My English teacher was really smart and intelligent and I like those types of people. So I was like, I'm going to pay attention to her in English. And my math teacher was a typical math teacher, but math is factual. There's no guessing game. It is what it is. And I'm a black and white type of person in many things that I do. So I enjoyed math. But the other subjects didn't have any interest whatsoever. So I'm the guy looking out the window at the train driving by. (laughs) in all those subjects, meanwhile, the teachers of the subjects I enjoy, like Colin's a great student, they're getting a completely different version of me. So when I enjoy something... I'm all in. Yeah. If I don't, I won't even show up. I'm like, no, nope, we're good. Don't need to do that. It'll be fun. No, I won't. So, what did you end up studying in college? So, let's go b- Let's t- go back two years before I start college. So, at 15, I go to my guidance counselor. And this is where the majority of teachers think I'm an idiot. And some <laughs> of them think I'm okay. He said, Colin, I think the only place for you is the army. I'm like, all right. So, I went to a career fair. And they had a helicopter, the guys were all in their gear, I'm like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Ireland's a neutral nation. So they don't typically engage in many things, but they'll, they'll occasionally pursue and pursuit. However, I went back to my dad and said, like, Hey Dad, I think you know the army is he's absolutely not <laughs> and his language is probably much more harsh than that. And his only experience of it was probably a family member whom he didn't like, who was in the military, and he assumed that that was the typical military person. Sure. A little, you know, not exactly the best way to judge a career based on one person or one individual, but unfortunately, we often do it, right? Yeah, we all have our biases. All cops are bad. It's like, no, that one cop you saw on TV is bad. All right. The rest of the guys are trying to do a good job. So the military didn't happen. When I decided, all right, I'll go to the health and fitness industry because I enjoyed exercise, I was already working out, going to the gym and the gym memberships, seems like a pretty easy gig. So I'll do that. So I pursued a degree in health and health and leisure with exercise science. Hmm. So a four-year degree. And while I was doing that degree, I felt like, hmm, I don't know if I want to pursue this because the money is terrible. There's no real motivation for me in this field. Maybe I'll go a PD. So I took a PD test in Ireland. And I passed the test, and we got to the... All right, your physical is here. Let's go do that. Awesome. And essentially, you've been accepted. Your academy is going to start in about 10 weeks, whatever it was. At that point, I met somebody who was currently a PD officer. I was like, hey, give me the real rundown here. What is it actually like? What am I getting myself in for here? Mm. So you could get yourself in for a lot of paperwork and a lot of abuse. I always respect the uniform, so I didn't know that that was a, you know, a thing that they dealt with at the time I see a police officer I'm like yes sir it just was how i did it a lot of paperwork and a lot of abuse the public don't want you I'm
0: like huh. so so people don't like police officers just like they don't like in ireland just like that everywhere don't like them man. Here. that's a worldwide <laughs> deal Yeah.
1: and then the outside the opposite side of that is if the bad guys are carrying weapons the good guys in ireland don't carry guns oh goodness so if you're chasing a guy with a gun yeah. you're literally you're not even bringing a knife to a gunfight you're right. bringing it and Billy Club, you know, yeah, right, that's yeah. it, <laughs> Like, yeah, I don't think I want to do that, yeah. so I, I bailed out on that, continued on with the, the college part, came out, started coaching uh, strength and conditioning with teams in Ireland, ended up working at a gym, um, got to a point where I was working as a supervisor in the gym system, but I was traveling all the time, and then I ended up meeting my wife in LA about 14 years ago, while on a trip out there, and then here we are now. So. Was she,
0: what, did she grow up in L.A.? Is she She
1: grew up in Colorado, went to college in Boulder. As soon as she graduated college, went to Chicago for a couple of months trying to find work. Didn't work out. Got a job offer in L.A. All right. So she rolled with it. and She's one of those folks as well that is okay with, all right, let's just do it. Let's try. Nice. And it ultimately worked out for us because of our her being American, me being Irish. I can't stay more than 90 days. I can't work here. Same reciproc- reciprocal rule for her to Ireland. So how do we figure this out? Mm. So for about a year, we were doing a long-distance relationship. So approximately a month or every six weeks, she or I would travel back or forth for a few days. It was definitely stressful, yeah. absolutely costly. And then the option to figure out what can we do to actually be together and see if this is something we want to make a real go of. Yeah. New Zealand came up. New Zealand offers a one year visa, working visa to Irish people and Americans. Okay. You don't have to have a job. You just gotta apply for the visa, have I think it was fifteen hundred dollars in your bank account, and here you go. So we flew in. So you guys met in New Zealand? Well we met in Ireland. <laughs> uh originally my brother was supposed to be there first, but that didn't happen, so he's always, you know, following his younger brother's lead. <laughs> So we go and we land, we've got a hotel booked for four days, we've got a rental car for four days and we've nothing else lined up and there's a bridge that leads you in from where the airport is in Auckland, New Zealand to downtown Auckland and as we're driving over that in our cheap rental car because we couldn't afford much else, I had a moment in my head where I, could, Man, I really hope this works out. <laughs> Because yeah. we knew each other, but we were in small bursts four days every couple yeah. of weeks or months.
0: Yeah, so when you're, like, the romance is high, right? Oh, yeah. Like, like, the drive is high when it's just these bursts. You're not living a real life.
1: No, not at all. Yeah. And we arrived, we figured it out, and we had a lot of fun. A lot of fun. I ended up working for the YMCA in New Zealand. And people are somewhat astounded. The YMCA is New Zealand? <laughs> the YMCA actually started in England, but it's known as an American. Uh, organization for whatever reason when I started in England anyway I started working for the YMCA worked there for a year at the end of that year my visa is expiring as is my wife's yeah well what now I'm not going to just get married for the sake of getting married or do we just go back to long distance again and go home well let's go to Australia they give us the same opportunity as New Zealand did so we flew directly from New Zealand to Australia and same thing, we had about four days of a hotel set up, four days with a rental car. Like I worked last time. <laughs> <Yeah. tried. laughs> so we landed in Melbourne, Australia, and within about two weeks, we're up and working, and then we yeah. have jobs and an apartment, and you figure it out.
0: So, okay. So do, well, so what's it like living in New Zealand? What's New Zealand like? i never So been.
1: New Zealand is- it's on my list, by the way. Pretty damn amazing. Yeah. The people are amazing. The Maori culture, which are the indigenous folks, beautiful people. I never felt once like I was the outsider at all. Um very welcoming. The cost of living is pretty good relative to the pay. Whereas when I went to Australia, now I'm in Melbourne, a major city. Auckland is the capital of New Zealand, but it's it's a smaller country, smaller city. When we moved to New Zeal sorry, when we moved from New Zealand to Australia, we were broke. I, mean, I had a job again got a job with a ymca it's the director of the new zealand ymca gave me a great letter of recommendation i was like all right boom you're in we're good so i, I knew the organization i knew what they're about their fundamentals what they like what they don't like what their whole ethos is I'm like all right i'm on board with that i'm not a religious person but i respect those who are and their belief system and typically when people are involved in those organizations like the ymca as an organization It's a family environment. It's a community place. It's not a fancy schmancy fitness center. Right. So you got regular, normal, real people showing up, trying to de-stress, decompress after their day, send their kids to basketball or swim lessons or the adventure park, whatever it is. So it was good. It wasn't glamorous, but it was good. I enjoyed it. But we were broke. The price of rent compared to the rate of pay, it, it wasn't even close. And there's one instance my wife and I always talk about. We were probably seven or eight months into our time in Australia. Didn't have a car. We would always walk everywhere, take the tram system. And we'd gone to the store to buy milk and bread. That was, we were getting paid in two days' time, milk and bread. We had no money to do anything else. Like, this isn't really living. You know, we were enjoying each other, but this wasn't really living. And as we were walking back with our shopping in hand, there was a $5 bill on the ground. like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> so I reached down, pick it up, and my old man would say, where there's five, there's probably more. <laughs> so I'm looking around on the ground, and sure enough, there's a $10 bill over there. I'm like, oh, I think I'm on a camera TV show or something. Somebody's right. trying to catch me out. So now we've got $15. Well, what do we do? It's like instead of going back to the store to buy more milk and bread, we kind of forgot for the next hour or so that we were poor, and we went to have lunch somewhere. And then we go back, we live the rest of our life, or sorry, rest of our time in Australia the next couple of months. And then we're back in Ireland. Yeah. Or, sorry, we flew back to the States first. What do we do? We're not married. We're still in the same position we were in. Um, but while in Australia, we'd gotten engaged, but we hadn't taken that next step yet. Long story short, we ended up getting married in the States, moved back to Ireland for a little while. Visa was processing, took about a year. From start to finish, flew out here to the U.S., landed in Colorado where she was born and raised. Her family were still there. Uh, probably a month or so into that, she got a job opportunity down here. I'm like, Sure. It's February. The weather's amazing. Yeah. I can play golf. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> what did, what so does she did. do? She now works for ASU. Okay. And Was that where that
0: opportunity landed her in ASU? No, no, she
1: okay. had moved on since then. But she's now working for ASU. Okay. So she's doing well. Yeah.
0: So it's it. I love I love what you're talking about the this story. This, that some of the struggles that when you're a young couple um, that you go through. I mean, I remember my wife and I the first year of our marriage, we didn't have a bed. We I yeah. <laughs> had some uh, camping mats,
1: uh-huh. and
0: you know we put blankets and camping mats, and that's what we slept on. Mm-hmm. and we're you know, whatever we're th- thrilled
1: <laughs> yeah and every every generation wants to do better right we, yeah. we want to do better my parents want to do better than they had and for my kid right now she is my wife can't go to the store without coming back with something <laughs> for her she's 18 months old about to be 19 months old and she she just knows what she knows she has all of the luxury items that she could ever want Right. she's going to have every opportunity I can provide for her over the course of her life I want to set her up in a position that when she leaves at eighteen that she never has to come back, but if she wants to, the door's gonna be always open for her, you know right, so we'll see how it goes but i'm I'm early in that part of my life with yeah a new kiddo,
0: yeah, I just think that the you know we we absolutely wanna level up for our kiddos, and I think there's some there's but there's something valuable about struggling a little bit when you're when you're young when you're twi- in your twenties well, and I think back to like I struggled. You know, I had a job when I was 11 and, you know, was hooking and jabbing essentially from that early age. And there's lessons learned in that. And I don't know how you impart those, you know, as you take your kiddos and you're like, we're going to do better for you. I don't know how you impart those same lessons other than, you know, encouraging them to go get a job, encouraging them to stretch themselves, putting them in tough situations Mm -hmm. and and giving them a little bit of rigor in their life, you know, um, you know, certainly, like you and your wife being able to go and travel and say, "Hey, we're going to go do this crazy thing. We're going to go live in New Zealand for a year. Let's go. We've got four days planned." Yep. And then figuring it out that takes a certain amount of chutzpah, first of all, <laughs> but and, and resilience and an ability to flex. And and you, where do you learn that? Well, you learn it picking fruit in the field when you're eleven.
1: Yeah, I I always lean back on my dad for his work ethic. Mm-hmm. My mom was a great example that she was a part-time clerk, if you will, at a newsagent store Mm. or a magazine store while we were in school. And then later on, I think she was in her early 40s, she said, I'm going to go back to school. So she went back to school, ended up getting her degree, and then became a teacher. Uh, Just recently retired last year.
0: What a great example, she said. You
1: know, and that's that's the thing, right? You're never too old. For me, I was 32 when I said, all right, fire service, let's do it. Yeah and here I am at 37 where five years later or yeah five years later when I do these recruitment information sessions one of the first questions is some guy is on there and he's a little older hey what's the age cut off it's like well that's your decision that's really up to you mm-hmm. can you see yourself still doing this job effectively and efficiently in twenty, twenty-five years yeah and some people say yeah of course but the nuance that we've seen younger men get broken from the job, yeah. the physical or the mental or whatever, the stresses that come with it, and having a a true understanding of what you're getting yourself into before you get into it, it might eliminate some people. Yeah, It might encourage some people as well when they go, oh, okay, I like that, I like this, I didn't know. But when I use myself as an example, by the time I retire, assuming I go to 25 years I'll be 58 and a half I I didn't think I'd ever be able to retire earlier than 70 had I have stayed in Ireland I never thought in a million years I'd get paid the money I get paid to do a job that I love I never thought I'd have the opportunities I never thought that I'd have a pension and the camaraderie I truly enjoy what we do I'm not one of those people that typically has a good work-life balance I tend to spend my off days at work if you will whether that's watching videos or doing tactics and strategies with people or listening to podcasts or related to fireground, anything to help me get better and it's something I need to make sure that I, I do put on the side because it does take time away from my home life and sure, I want to be as good as I can at this career this job because it can kill us and you can never train too much for a job that can kill you but there's a time when you can do the training and I found myself struggling with managing my time at home To have more time. Not with my kid. My kid is 100%. If she's at home, I'm not doing anything else except hanging (laughs) with her. But I'll be honest, when it comes to my wife, you can sit back and you can take people for granted. Oh, yeah. And you can come home and you're tired and they might not understand that or you work overtime and they might not understand that. But for me, it's just, again, going back to my old man. If there's an opportunity to work and to get better and to do more, just do it. But there's a sacrifice that comes with that. And it's been, it's been a lot of fun. The journey's been a lot of fun, yeah. but I need to work better on my work-life balance.
0: Yeah, you know that is a, you know the one of the most challenging. Uh, we we draw we strive to hire folks that have a incredibly high uh, work ethic, right? Because this job demands um, your attention. When you're at work, you got to be all in. Right? We have people's lives in our hands, uh, quite literally, all the time and so anything less than um striving for excellence is just not acceptable and so w- with that in mind you hire we hire folks that are pretty intense and have a tendency to be pretty engaged and so struggle to maintain work life balance right in a meaningful way and you have to be really deliberate in that in order to to uh be capable of having that and uh you know we uh, sometimes that means you have to set aside your ego and focus on other people, yeah. and um, and really be mindful of what they, those around you need from you, and that can be hard to do at times. Yeah, yeah. You
1: know. Honestly, I think the, the best version of myself is at work, and I don't always give the best version of myself at home. Right. Whether that's because mm-hmm. I see it as, well, I've committed to being good at this job. I've committed to working hard at this job, right. or hey, I'm getting paid to do this job, and then I come home and I'm I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Right. The The family doesn't understand it. They don't get it. Um, I've tried to convince my wife to do a ride-along and she's never said yes to it. <laughs> Just to see what we do when right. we do it. Right. You know, and right now with the current situation it's not going to happen. But going forward I would hope that she would say, okay, I'll do it. And then for my kiddo, if we go back to how do we teach our kids the values that maybe we've seen or whatever. The shelter in Phoenix has a pretty long street that is is full of people who for whatever reason circumstance they've ended up there Mm. and I I 100% plan to bring my kiddo down there one day and go hey a lot of these folks were in a position you're in right now in life where they had a family they had something to look forward to they had opportunity and along the way they've you know wandered left or right or missed an open door didn't take an opportunity or sat back or got involved in something she has to be a certain age, of course, to understand that and get some value from it. Versus me just taking her for a drive, and then I also will point out the successful people in life. It's like, hey, this person came from nothing; they had every reason in the world not to be successful, mm-hmm. and they still figured it out. Yeah. So ultimately, it's coming down to you, sweetheart. You got to do your job. <laughs> a lot you know? of pressure.
0: You know the the one thing about parenting that has that has been a shock to me. My kiddos are in their, in their, their early twenties. And the thing that surprised me the most about being a parent was that each one of them was, was their own person. They, they're totally unique and they're super individual. And you know, and I had this idea in my head, Oh, my kids will do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And they're, they've done completely different things. And that's wonderful, right? That's who they are. And that's what I would expect for them. Um, But it is really, it is really interesting that they are, um, no matter what opportunities we provide for them, they still have a certain amount of agency and they will make choices and their own experiences and their own um, values will surface and take them in different directions. And, um, you know, and that's, uh, that is a challenging thing as a parent to realize that they are independent
1: operators at a certain point. (laughs) It's just kind of crazy. And we can only do so much, right? Yeah. You're the average of the four or five people you spend the most time with. Yeah. Whether it's a fact or not, probably not. But (laughs) often successful people hang out with successful people. Mm -hmm. And often those who are not do the same. Yeah, choose your friends wisely. So if I can control whose party she's going to as a little kid (laughs) or whose sleepovers she's participating in, I'm going to do my best to navigate that. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I can only... Give her opportunity. I can line her up to go in the right direction. Yeah. But she is her own person, and she's gonna do her own thing. And her mom is just like that. That, you know, we're very different people in many, many ways. Yeah. And I'm hoping that she gets a lot of her mom's attributes, <laughs> and just a little bit of mine. <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's the that is the great unknown. So,
0: um, speaking of unknown, you, um, you do a lot of mentoring. And I know you. You know you're affiliated with the Emerald Society, and, and you talked about doing the recruitment sessions, etc. So you get a lot of folks who come into, who come, who show up and go, "Firefighter, that sounds great." I have no idea what that means, yep. right? So, uh, in that process, as you're as you're mentoring and whatever, what are what are some of the things that you try to instill in folks, help them understand, and and what are some of the things that you encourage them to do to prepare themselves to become a firefighter?
1: I'll, I'll often joke that I bring the legitimacy to the Emerald Society in Phoenix because <laughs> I'm the only person <laughs> <laughs> who is actually from Ireland in that organization. Uh-huh. However, I probably do the least amount of work. I really do. I show up on occasion whenever it suits my schedule. I typically don't rearrange my schedule for it. And the, the folks that are running that now are just taking it away and they're doing fantastic. When I was first told about the Emerald Society, uh, I looked it up online and it it said something along the lines of, Folks who have an affinity towards Irish heritage and culture, and it had a meeting date. It was Station Thirty and Twenty Seven Avenue Belmont. Well, I didn't know what to expect. It's like, oh, I guess I'll go to that thing. <laughs> I was assuming old timers are sitting down drinking whiskey and Guinness, talking about the good old days. <laughs> so I get there and I pull up to the wrong building. I pull up to the, what is now the old CTC. Yeah, yeah. It's like, what the heck? There's nobody here. There's no cars. There's no lights on. So I'm on the internet looking up, what's the actual address of this place? And, of course, it's right across the street, right? So I go in, and I was hit with 25 or 30 guys sitting down, paying full attention to the two blue shirts sitting up at the <laughs> top of the room. I so what the heck is this? What did I get myself in for? And about 15 minutes into it, I'm like, I think this is the place I need to be. Now, was this when you were kind of exploring your own entry into the fire service? So if we go back... Um, I'm working at the YMCA here in the United States. Okay. So I've worked for them all over the world. Yeah. Um, I think I'm the only person, in fact, that's worked for them in three different <laughs> countries. I'll hold that uh, star to my heart. But so I'm working at the YMCA, and there's a crew that comes in every shift to work out. Or mm. you know, it says six years ago, and one of my clients approached the captain on that truck and said, "Hey, my daughter's interested in getting hired." With the fire department, could you give her any information? He's so like, hey, here's my phone number, have her call me, and she can come by the station, do a ride-along, whatever. So that client left, and the captain approaches me, and he asks me, hey, have you ever met this guy's daughter? Is she a good hard worker, good person, all that kind of stuff. It's like, I've never met her, no idea. I'm not going to give an opinion. Okay. Have you ever thought about joining the fire service? It's like, well, I actually did, and I had. About two years prior, I'd looked into it. But well, whichever department I was able to find information on at the time, which I don't recall who it was, one of the requirements was that you needed to be a U.S. citizen. And at the time, I was not. I was a permanent resident with a, a green card. Mm. So I just, all right, I guess I got to wait till I'm a citizen. So I pushed it completely to the back burner, didn't think about it. But I always saw this crew coming in and out, always watched them interact, and they're always nice and polite and cordial. And occasionally there'd be a 911 call because we had a pool or older folks working out and they'd come in and do their thing and leave. That seems like a pretty cool job. And they go and fight some fire too. Well, I say this to this gentleman, this captain, and he's like, I think you're wrong. I'm pretty sure you're wrong. I'm pretty sure you can work for the city of Phoenix as a permanent resident or a green card holder. But I'll get back to you. So a few days passed, not knowing it was the following shift. They come back in. He approaches me. Hey, I've got good news for you. You're good to go. If you want to go up and do a ride-along, you don't need to be a citizen. I'm like, are you sure? He's like, absolutely. He's like, all right. So I went up, did a ride-along, and then a year later, I'm in the academy. It was pretty much jump right into the deep end right now and sink or swim. I'm in my early 30s. I've got a wife. I've got responsibilities. I'm thinking that I'm not getting any younger. Yeah. And then you do ask yourself those questions. Well, I don't have family. I don't know anything about it. I don't have time to go through a fire one and two before yeah. here and there. Well, Those are all the things that you hear uh-huh. out, in
0: the, out in the ether, right, of yep. all the stuff that you have to have. you got to be connected. you got to have a, you know, the fire one and two completed,
1: et cetera. Yep. So I didn't have any of that. Oh. I did have about eight months before the next testing process was coming around. So I got all my prerequisites done, went into EMT class probably – two weeks after my first ride along and shot that out and got that over and done with got the CPAT and everything that goes along with it. I haven't been in the U S long enough to have a bad background. So I was good on that (laughs) Um, and everything checked out. And luckily I was encouraged to go to the Emerald society. I forget who it was that said it, but somebody at that station assumed I would have already known about them. Of course. Right. Well,
0: yeah. From the home. Yeah.
1: Country. (laughs) So anyway, I participated and started doing right along to some of the the bigger stations in the area, and the Emerald Society were a huge driving force behind me in just giving me the exposure to the fire service. This is what we do. This is who we are. This is why we do it. This is where we're going forwards in in the next 15, 20 years if we can get all the right training in place and support in place and funding in place. Like, well, that's a pretty, pretty cool opportunity, and I... Never tested for any other city, never interviewed for anyone else, never even considered anyone else, and just got lucky that first time around. Yeah. So, it's been five years now since the academy. I'm still extremely young in regards to seniority on the job, but the gray hair allows me to appear a little bit more senior. <laughs> so I get away with it a little bit. Um, but since then, like all right, Phoenix Fire. Everybody talks about, across the country, friends of mine who now know I, am like, a you for Phoenix? That's pretty damn cool. And a huge component of that, of course, is Alan Bruno I look at your shelf here, you've got Fire Command. Mm-hmm. And everything that he did in his tenure here in 48 years of working with the Phoenix Fire Department, from the start to obviously when he became our fire chief, I've probably watched every single video that you can imagine with his name attached to it whether it's customer service-related or fire command reading the books or command safety. Uh, And just, all right, why was he so successful? Part of it, hey, we are who we are. We do what we do. This is why we're really good at it. And if you tell people, okay, let's start listening. And the confidence that comes with that. I didn't realize that I'd gotten hired with that department. I just assumed they were all the same, but there's levels to everything in life, right? And for me, I want to be at the top level of whatever I'm pursuing so continuing all of that training all the videos if I'm at the station I'm probably on my phone looking at something that's related to it uh, if I'm at home again my work life balance has been affected a little bit because I'm constantly focusing on the fire service or EMS delivery being involved with teaching the paramedic program or teaching our research for the current paramedics in the field it's a great way for me to make sure I stay on top of my game because if you're going to teach it you better know it and you know there's somebody smart coming in with a great question. Yeah. And if I don't have the answer, that's not that's not okay. Uh, there will be times, of course, you put your hand up. I don't know, but I'll get back to you in 5, 10 minutes. And everybody has the next person that they go to, their mentor. And I've got some on the medical side that I always reach out to if I've got questions. And then, of course, on the firefighting side, the fire ground side, there's folks that I lean on for training, and advice, knowledge, wisdom. And I think... When I do the mentoring on my side with the Emerald Society or the recruitment process that we have, I want those folks to be people I want to work next with. I want them to sit down next to me on a fire truck in two years' time or five years' time. Heck, they might end up being my captain or my chief or whatever. So trying to encourage people that I would enjoy working with who I see that they have something in them, not just because they're big, strong, physical specimens, because we all know that that is probably the least important thing on a fire ground or in a fire service, if you will. you got to be able to get along with people. you got to be willing to listen and learn. And you got to be willing to deal with some pretty drastic and stressful situations and be able to walk up to a family member and tell them that their loved one is dead. And it's those real moments <laughs> where you can see somebody that has put a lot of time and effort into their training that they're confident in saying, hey, we did everything we could for this person. Everything you did prior to us getting there was 100% perfect. You couldn't have done any more for them. But I'm sorry to tell you that your husband is dead. And that's a difficult conversation to have. Mm-hmm. If you're telling a kid, I'm sorry, but your mom is dead, that's a whole different conversation. Mm-hmm. And then if you're telling a mom that her child is dead, that's that's the hardest one for me is telling a parent that their child is no longer with us. Now we do our best to prevent that right with our training, with our experience, asking questions when we can, researching, learning, doing as much as we can to be prepared for that call. If everything goes the way it should have on our end and it ends up being a negative outcome for the family, I'll sleep okay, but I still won't sleep perfectly sound because you'll always go back and question mm-hmm. if we had have turned out a little quicker if I had have paid attention more a CE if I had of. If the engineer hadn't have made the wrong left turn into the whatever, could we have done it but up to this point, every time I go back and second guess myself on all of that I'm like no, nope, I did it, we're good I did everything the way it was supposed to be done and I don't want to be the person that doesn't have the answer to a question, so I'm constantly trying to get better
0: so when you're when you're talking to folks who are interested in the job, how are you? Um, I mean, are you just being completely raw with them, just like that? Yeah. Here's what you're facing. Yeah. And here's, you know, do you think that people have a pretty fair understanding of what this job
1: absolutely really entails? Absolutely not. I, I, maybe four or five percent who might have family on the job, maybe they understand what the role is and what we do on a regular basis. A lot of folks are going on what they've heard or what they've seen or what they've watched on TV or in movies. Yeah. So I try and honestly keep it as real as possible. Hey, these are some of the things you're going to do. Are you okay seeing a dead person? Are you okay seeing a mom mourn for her child because they passed away from a drowning incident? Are you okay standing next to somebody as their house is on the ground flattened from a fire? And they've got no belongings left over whatsoever. Are you okay with waking up at 2 a.m. in the morning to go on a call that maybe you don't deem to be an emergency, but somebody else did? So guess what? You're there, and it's your job to manage that call and provide care and customer service to that person and and go about your day or go back to bed, whatever it might be. You've got 24 hours to make a difference, and there are definitely shifts where 24 hours come and go, and you maybe felt like not much happened and there's 24 hours next week or last week where you did have a heart attack patient, you did have a stroke patient, you did have a house fire, you did have a car fire, and you were able to salvage, whether it was pets, pictures, or pills for that patient, or sorry, that homeowner. You were able to keep that person alive just long enough for family to fly in out of town to say goodbye to their granddad, whoever it may have been. Or you're quick enough to educate and... You find a teenager in the back of an ambulance who felt like taking their own life was their best opportunity or best option today. And luckily, they were unsuccessful in that. And having a conversation with a 14-year-old that thinks that the world is coming in on them, that's a. I believe that's a responsibility on us. I'm not there to yell at them. I'm not there to tell them that they shouldn't have done what they did. You just try and show them that somebody cares for that 15 minutes that you have contact with them. Yeah.
0: You know what I think is really interesting about that is is when you are first entertaining uh, the idea of becoming a firefighter, I don't, you know, when you ask the question, are you okay with this? And I'm like, man, I don't know if I could have asked effectively or truthfully or really known uh, the answer to that question when I was first coming on this job. And it wasn't until, you know, until you see your first, you know, significant trauma, you know. Trauma code, or you know, dead person, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, until you realize what that feels like, when it what it really is. Yeah. So, I I think it's interesting that we we have to be very transparent with people about what this job is. You know, there is a uh, significant majority of the time is running medical calls. Some of those medical calls are, well, let's just say we we'll call them less than urgent, right? And then that's sprinkled with some very serious and very intense. Uh, medical calls that are very uh, d- challenging and and difficult and then you know and then sprinkled in there there's some firefighting and there's some other type of calls right technical rescue hazmat et cetera and the balance is very uneven with I think what our impression is when we first come on this job and it's it's that's a challenge to maintain uh a sense of uh I don't want to say commitment, but to stay engaged when you feel like you're not being fulfilled. So I think you have to have an understanding of what you're getting into when you show up here. Yeah. You know, I say here, but in the fire service. When you yeah. show up in the fire service and you're, you want to do this job, being a firefighter is so much
1: more than just fighting fire. Mm-hmm. So we can have a whole different conversation when it comes to experience versus time. You mm-hmm. can have 20 years on the job. Doesn't mean you're an expert. You can have a lot of experiences, doesn't mean you've learned from them, you were just involved in them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you can have somebody that analyzes everything that they've been on. And yes, it's your typical house fire, but this particular time the back door was open and you were not aware of that. Mm -hmm. And now you're going into a flow path. Or if the roof had collapsed on the back side of the building in a previous house, well, there's going to be a different ventilation profile on that house. Same with the medical aspect, we go to a chest pain call. It might be what we might deem a routine routine chest pain call, but for that individual, this might be the first time it's ever happened to them, and they have no idea what to expect, so keeping them informed as we do what we're doing, keeping family informed as we do what we're doing, and our high risk low frequency calls because there's not enough of them, and crazy as it might seem, we want more fires and they're higher risk for us, but because the frequency is so low, the chance of us making a mistake is higher, right? Mm -hmm. But if we train toward that, if we train toward recognizing that, hey, we haven't done this drill in such a long time, we haven't done a man down drill in a long time, we haven't ran a mayday in a long time, if the captain is the person who has the mayday, he's our patient right now, but he's the person who ran all the maydays and all the trainings we've done. Well guess what? Somebody else needs to step up right now and take over that. And I think as a service, as the fire service in general, we often allow the engineers to do engineer things, the captains to do captain things, and the firefighters to do firefighter things. Well, that's a perfect world. There's often times when somebody has got time off, they're showing up late, they've got something else going on, there's an issue on pump panel. Or, again, your captain is preoccupied with keeping command for the next four or five minutes. So doing everything that I've been doing thus far, hopefully making myself better so that the fire ground slows down and my mind speeds up Mm -hmm. and I can help the person next to me or lean on the person who's beside me and make good decisions. The same with EMS. If I'm down here teaching our EMS program, and I'm in the field and we go on a call and I have a brand new paramedic next to me, I would hope that they're okay with asking me a question. And I would also hope that they're okay with me asking them a question because maybe they have the answer to that. And I think ego eats brains, under Alan Mm Brunacini's term. As soon as we believe we know it all, then that's going to get us hurt. If I feel like I've got this house fire under control right now but I haven't gotten a 360... We don't know what's inside yet, but it looks like our cookie cutter fire. There's our complacency component. And for me, there's no place for complacency in this job. If people meet me on a call, they probably think I'm just a stern hard ass because it's all business. It's, it's We got to do what we got to do. Customer service, 100% that's it. As soon as we get back on the truck and go back to the station, I'm probably cracking jokes and the, the person who's having more fun at the station than anybody else. It's a, It's a switch that we need to be able to turn on and off. And if that's 2 in the afternoon or 2 in the morning, it doesn't matter. you just got to be able to say, okay, it's go time. And everybody's got to get their stuff together and work as a team, work as a crew. And if you need to lean on someone, absolutely. But be prepared to be leaned on as well. And knowing your roles and responsibilities is great. But also knowing the role and responsibilities of the people in front of you. And maybe those behind you on that rescue that's coming in behind. Knowing that our experience levels are all different, and again, going back to just because somebody has X amount of time doesn't mean they have expertise, and just because somebody tells you they have expertise doesn't mean shit either, right? Yeah. So. Yeah.
0: Trust but verify.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The
0: it, it's you're talking about a really important piece, and you, you mentioned the word complacency. And there's a a sign that I took a picture of years ago. It says complacency kills, mm-hmm. and it's that just resonates in my brain so frequently it is no matter how long you've been on this job, things are always changing and evolving and we have to constantly be, um, you know, in the classroom, so to speak and, and learning and, and challenging ourselves and challenging what we think we know and what we think we understand, what we think is true and, and taking that to the litmus and trying to, you know, Testing the hypotheses, right? Mm-hmm. Making sure that what we are saying is real, uh, we have to validate that, and we have to repeat that and re- and revalidate it. And when people bring new ideas to the table, we challenge the idea and we work on it. Because yep. the minute we settle in and go, "Yep, this is how we've always done it," we are running aground. Mm-hmm. We that's a that's a problem for us, and things are too dynamic and and too. Uh, Transient for us to just assume that they're the same.
1: Yeah.
0: We got to keep moving. The um, Okay, I got a couple of rapid fire questions for Let's you. Let's do it. What's something that you believe that other
1: people think is crazy? I believe that when I die, the lights turn out and that's it. The majority of the world don't don't agree with me on that. They've got their own beliefs of an afterlife or... Uh, a rebirth, or whatever the case may be, mm. but for me, I've got one life. I'm gonna live it. I'm gonna enjoy it. Take every opportunity I can. Create opportunities for other people. Because again, in my opinion, and obviously I don't know, it's my belief that when the lights turn out at whatever age I am, they're out and they're not coming back on.
0: Right now. Speaking of which, where I wanted to ask you this earlier, and I totally forgot. You've traveled all these different places. What has been one of your favorite places to, what do you recommend? Which place you recommend the most? Switzerland. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I hadn't even mentioned Switzerland. Yeah, I was Why? just how uh, do you recommend
1: Switzerland? Beautiful. Okay. Absolutely. I mean New Zealand was fantastic. It really was. But it's like a mini version of Switzerland. Okay. It's just incredible. It's clean. I felt incredibly safe all of the time. It was very expensive. But with that cost you get everything else that comes with. Cool. You get the luxury items, it's beautiful,
0: cool. All right. Um, conversely to that, what's one bad recommendation you've heard of,
1: you've heard people give? I guess it's not a recommendation, but you'll often hear people "grass is always greener on the other side," and I'm like it's not, it's not always. You don't know what pesticides are going into that. <laughs> you don't know work that person's putting into it. I think ultimately we need to maintain our own lives, our own lawn, if you will, work as hard as we can on it. And sometimes it's better to the devil you know, right? Hold on, make your current situation better before jumping out and closing that door behind you. Uh, A monkey is unlikely to grab a second branch until he's, sorry, he's unlikely to let go of the branch he's holding before he grabs another one. The free fall aspect Sometimes it works out, but more often than not, you—it's nice to have something to fall back on. For me, I've lived my life a little bit on both sides of that fence with traveling to New Zealand, traveling to Australia, coming here to the U.S. A lot of unknowns, taking a risk, but I guess my safety net was like I can always go home. You know, the worst case scenario, I go back to the way it was. But if you don't like the situation you're in, try and better it first before getting out of it. If you gotta get out you gotta get out of it, life moves on. If it's not for you, it's not for you, but make sure you've done everything in your power to make it better before you just give up on it. And that goes for relationships, careers, just your life in general.
0: Alright. I love it. All right. What's the what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given?
1: I don't know if there's Like hard work goes a heck of a long way. Right? Uh, Something I will say that if we talk about the fire service, seniority is great, but relationships are better. And when you can sit down and have a conversation with somebody, be it something like this or just at the park bench or in the back of an ambulance with somebody, the relationships you can build with people, the experience you can gain, the knowledge, the wisdom, the understanding from just sitting down having a conversation, that to me is is much more valuable than time. Uh, Time is going to, it's gonna go you can use it as best you want you can't control it you can't slow it down it's the one thing that's always moving be it that life or at fire ground it's something that you don't have control over so doing as much as you can with the time we have giving other people your time but not allowing them to waste it making them know that you perceive your time to be extremely valuable but respecting other people too don't waste their time if you say you're going to do something, do it. Follow through is hugely important to me. If I say I'm going to show up, I'll be there. If I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. It's it's something that we lack right now in the world. I think in general, a lot of people are, are sayers and not doers. If you say you're going to do something, I 100% expect that you're going to do it. It's the bottom line on that.
0: Yeah, integrity. Yeah. Okay, last question. This We call this the Fireground Fitness Podcast. What does it mean to you to be fire ground fit?
1: Well, you could look at the physical aspect, which is certainly a component of it. You can definitely look at the mental aspect because you're going to go into a building that has a potential to collapse, has a potential to kill you. But overall, are you fire ground fit? Are you the right fit? That's a a phrase we use for the recruitment process. Are you the right fit for the fire ground? Are you able to handle the positives, the highs, the lows, the adrenaline, the times where you do have to stand next to that family, as I mentioned earlier, who we put the fire out, but your house is on the ground. Are you in a position where you can learn from that? Is your overall fitness, both health and wellness and mental well-being, on track with surviving a 25-year career? If there's resources, utilize them. Uh, Don't find yourself in a hole that you jumped into. If you fell into it, that's one thing. But don't jump into a hole without a shovel to get yourself back out. And maybe that shovel is just going to dig you deeper anyway, right? So I think overall, fire ground fit is, is the fire service in general. Are you willing to continue to learn? Are you willing to be told, nope, you're wrong, and here's why? And challenge the plan? And be willing to have your plan challenged at the same time, too. If I can't back up my words or my actions, I shouldn't have done them in the first place. Right on. Well. well, Colin,
0: thank you, brother. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Sir, you thanks too. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's fun. Hey, folks, thanks for tuning in. That's all we have for today. If you are enjoying the Fireground Fitness Podcast, get on over to whatever platform you enjoy the most. Subscribe, and this episode will drop in the middle of the night. Also, get on over to iTunes, rate and review the podcast. Your feedback is immeasurable and um, helps other people find this podcast for their listening enjoyment. Anyways. Take the lessons you've learned from this episode. Take the lessons you've learned from other episodes and find a way to imbue them in your life. It is up to you to lean in and choose what direction you're going to go each day. So go on out there and get after it. Get some.